I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm not saying development is going to replace, you know, capital growth or any fundamental reasons why you're investing, but it's it's an addition. So, you know, it's a way to supercharge your investment. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Alex Dutt to find out more about the mindset he had when starting property, why calculating and analyzing is an integral part to his strategy, his views on why developing is one of the better ways to invest and much, much more. Jumping straight into the mindset side of things, Dutt gives us a little background information on why he decided to build a property portfolio and work within the industry. I like the idea of planning for the future. Um, you know, having seen, I guess, firsthand people that didn't plan for the future, um, you know, to me, I guess the consequences of that um, forced me into action. So to me, that's really, really important. But I actually, um, property itself, um, although again, it wasn't necessarily my decision to get involved in it, uh, or I should, should say it was, but I wasn't, I wasn't the driver as I mentioned. Um, you know, I have definitely, uh, it's, it's become, uh, I'm very passionate about it. And I love it and I love the opportunity that it creates. And I also, as I mentioned, as an, as an asset class, I love the fact that you can be so hands-on and, and, and do things with it that way. So I do, you know, renovation is another passion of mine. I'll be doing another renovation next year. Um, so to me, that's, you know, that was one of the, the motivations. Continue on from the previous segment with Dutt, he delves further into the types of strategies he's implemented throughout his journey, specifically in regards to developments. The initial one was a house and land package, so I guess you could call that a development. Um, I started from scratch, so kind of seeing that, again, wasn't a great success, um, so I'm not hanging my hat on that, but it did, I guess, give us a bit of, bit of exposure to how that all works. The next one was a townhouse also in Brisbane. We bought that from an affordability standpoint. That one actually almost doubled in value. And we we, we, um, we sold that um, actually before the market went backwards. So we made uh, well out of that. So um, this is another thing, I guess, that I just, just kind of mentioned that I, I, I think that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with actually selling and capitalising on, on, you know, your wins in the investment uh, your journey along the way. I think um, if you're replacing with another investment, it can work out quite well. Um, so I hear, hear that a lot that people suggest that you know you never sell or, or something like that. But um, in my experience, you know it can be a great, you know a great benefit to sell at times. Um, but then we also did um, uh, a purchase. We bought bought some land, um, did a subdivision in um, in Victoria. So and built from scratch there. So sourced the land and then found a builder and did all of that. Um, went through that exercise. So that was. Uh, 
I, we wouldn't did make a huge amount of money on that one, but it kind of gave, I guess, me a bit of a taste for how, um, you know, how you could make money through through small scale development, and, and that was something, as I mentioned, coupled with getting experience between behind the scenes dealing directly with developers and seeing how they work, um, and even investing in projects as a from a wholesale level, um, you know, tying that into to how we can, you know, how the average uh, investor can can make money out of small scale development. He adds that while he didn't necessarily build a network of developers he could take his clients to, this experience did allow him to offer his clients interesting advice and assistance. To me, it's, you know, it was, I kind of reverse engineered it and said, I mean, I didn't want to, I guess, be working with developers in the sense that, um, you know, I'm I'm bringing clients to a developer. That's not what I was about. It was, okay, how do I make the individual investor a developer themselves i wanted to, them to, to have you know 100 control over their own um, project and be engaging directly with the professionals so um the, i guess the word developer um again i'm not dealing with developers um nowadays it's okay my clients are developers so they're whether they're you know and they're, they're not full-time developers they're part-time developers but as investors as private investors they're developing their own little projects uh, when i say little projects i mean you know, we're still talking, you know, in the millions even, but in the grand scheme of things, they are relatively small-scale development. But they are resourcing the land uh, or sourcing the site and doing demolition, um, performing subdivision and then rebuild um, to, to, to cater to the local market. But that's always residential. With council rules, zoning requirements and land sourcing expertise required to execute these types of developments, Dutch shares how he brings about these finished projects. To me, I mean, it all, it all, everything hinges around the, the site itself. So sometimes it's um, blocks, as in vacant blocks, but for the most part, it's, you know, we're buying in established areas where we can, we, we know what we're looking for and we can find sites um, that we can put our criteria on and see if they make sense from a development standpoint. So like you said, there's a million and one moving parts and there's a lot to consider and there's also a lot of different things that, that can and will go wrong. Um, so making contingencies and allowance for that, but it's, I think it's a natural progression. I mean, most of the investors I've worked with over the years, um, you know, they start off with a buy and hold, a standard established residential purchase, and then they look at, okay, whether it's, you know, their, their, their second or 10th property, they kind of get to a point where they're like, okay, I want something a little bit more hands-on, um, you know, and that could come right back to doing, you know, just doing a renovation. I mean, I really like, one of my favourite things about property as an investment vehicle or real estate as an investment vehicle is that it, you can be very hands-on with it. You can actually, you've got total control, and if you want to, uh, improve it uh, through renovations or, or even development, knock down and rebuild multiple dwellings on the site, you know, you can you can do that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot to know even, you know, with renovation. Um, you know, there's so much to know before you even get started with that. Adding to this, Dutt shares the strategy he recommends to his clients when they decide to go down the hands-on route and add renovated properties to their portfolio. I guess one thing that is worth recognizing is that you know with the new um the lending restrictions courtesy of APRA and the, the royal commission into banking misconduct i mean borrowing being able to actually borrow to to purchase property and even develop property is a real commodity it's a real advantage for investors so if you're able to use that strategically you're going to get a real leg up over a lot of a lot of home buyers and also obviously it's a quite a complicated time consuming um exercise so if you're able to you get your head around it and do that, then, you know, people will pay an absolute premium for the end product. I mean, we're just, 
We're in the process of doing one at the moment for a client in, in one of the inner city inner city suburbs of Brisbane, uh, and the the local owner occupier market will just eat up what we're what we're building. And it's a very well established um, pocket. So again, we're not we're not doing greenfield or anything. It's very much you know this is you know one of only a handful of developments in in the entire suburb out of you know three thousand odd odd homes. But the idea is that we buy an old home, uh, you know, on a big parcel of land that we know can be subdivided. So we've there's a whole bunch of criteria that we need to go through, um, you know, to cover off on on meeting council requirements and and so on, and also just suitability for subdivision and construction and. And, and so forth, and then knocking down the home, splitting the blocks, or turning one lot into two lots, and then building, uh, in this case, it'll be two very big owner-occupier homes. So they'll be about 270-odd square metres, um, two-storey, five-bed, three-bath, um, you know, not not overcapitalising, but still a, a quite a good, um, nice, you know, level of finish, um, but very much catering to the local owner-occupier resale market. So they'll still rent. Um, so we'll, we'll hold them for the short term to alleviate any capital gains tax and GST implications, but they'll still rent very well. That's a strategy. But with so much to consider, how exactly did Duck come up with a way to find locations where this strategy could be successful? Every council is different and it's not going to work in every area based on where the markets are at. And in some areas, it's just cost prohibitive. Um, I mean, Sydney's a prime example of that. It's only going to work in a handful of um, councils in you know in in Sydney, I mean it doesn't it doesn't work too well in my own backyard, for example. But um, but I guess um, the the idea is that we're buying um, with development. We've got to approach it quite differently because we've def- definitely got to look at that resale market. Again, I say that's important for everything, but I feel like it's even more important for for development because you don't want to be, be if you're going to in, be investing in a project that's, you know, one and a half to two million dollars, you want to be make sure that you've got an out if you need to. So you're building something that, you know, you can sell um, upon completion, even though you may end up, as I said, to alleviate capital gains tax and GST, you end up holding uh, for a little bit longer. But the important thing is that as a developer, you can you're starting from scratch, so you can really hone in on building something that really you know ticks all the boxes in terms of what owner occupiers or the local resale market want. So you can be very very specific. Um, so you can totally manipulate what you've got. The area obviously is very very important because again you you've you've got to you've still got to tick all the boxes from a capital growth standpoint. I remember talking to someone actually at one of the expos um, within the last year or two and and we were talking about development um, profits and I said, look, here's one we did you know recently you know the project cost was around 1.3 million and made the investor you know $180,000 on completion. And they said, well, you know, I bought a property in Sydney and it almost went up in value that much in the last four years. And I said, well, yeah, that, and that, that's fantastic. But I'm saying we're, all, we're still doing developments in areas that have growth potential as well. So it's still got to tick all the same capital growth boxes as well. So I'm not saying development is going to replace, um, you know, capital growth or any re- fundamental reasons why you're investing, but it's a it's an addition. So, you know, it's a way to supercharge your investment. So same with renovation. So, you know, renovation is not a replacement for an investment strategy in my mind, but it can really supercharge your strategy. With this in mind, Dutt explains the upsides of holding on to recent developments. I mean, not only are you creating equity as well, but in this case, you're also creating rent 
So you're creating, you know, you're increasing the rent return of the of the investment property. So again, it's not, you know, buying for for yield is not a reason to buy an investment property, as far as I'm concerned. But obviously, it makes it a lot more affordable to hold. Um, coupled with obviously, you know, better depreciation because you're building new, so you're getting depreciation. You're saving on a bit of stamp duty. So there are some benefits, but most importantly, you're 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 being hands-on and you're creating something from nothing. And that idea really appeals to me. So you're still using leverage. So you're still borrowing to buy, to, to purchase the site and borrowing to fund construction and things like that through standard residential lending. Um, so you're still using everything, all the benefits that property investment has to offer. Um, but you're just adding, you know, you're adding an extra element, which is creating creating profit, um, you know, from, from nothing. So that, to me, that's really appealing. However, while all this sounds straightforward, Dutt explains that it's easier said than done and that there is a process one must go through to make sure any project is feasible. First and foremost, uh, it's, it's experience. So, I mean, you can never you can never account for all the things that are said that can and will go wrong. I mean, every development is different in terms of something, you know, you'll, I almost feel like every development I learn something new, so something different will pop up. Um, but to me, it's experience and also just being ruthless with the numbers. Again, coming back to my original, you know, study as an accountant, which was never, you know, something I never actually um, followed through on. I mean, I finished the course, but I never actually used it in, in my career. But I did tie back into my my love of um, the analytical mind and, and love of numbers and, and crunching the numbers and so on. So that was quite helpful. So um, I guess, you know, doing a feasibility, but just, um, you know, having a strict amount of criteria that you've got to go through and a tick box and a process that you, when you assess a site. So there's, you know, so many things that you need to look at um, and know about when you're looking at um, at a site, but also having all the professionals at your disposal and knowing, okay, um, who can I lean on to give me a bit of feedback in the initial stages, whether it's a town planner, um, whether it's a builder, um, you know, whether it's a civil engineer, whether it's a surveyor, all those professionals that you're working with that you can say, okay, I found a site. Can you just quickly glance your eyes over this one and give me some feedback before before I you know, take it any further? Coming up after the break, we'll continue to speak with Alex Dutt about his property investing strategy. I think developing as, a, as an approach, it's not going to work in every area. So you've really got to know the area and make sure that, okay, from a number standpoint, does it actually stack up and is it feasible? The personal habit that has allowed him to successfully build a portfolio without the fear of too much risk? Anything that's being told to me, I very much you know, like to dissect it and, and analyze it before I make a, make a decision so, or before kind of uh, accepting something as my own belief. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Continue on with his strategic take on development, Duck shares the few tricks he believes potential and active developers can use to ensure that they get the end result they hope for. I think there's a few things you can look at, but I mean, I will say that obviously with development is a slightly riskier proposition. So, you know, with it's, with, with any investment, it's that risk reward adage. So um, the more, more potential for greater risk, the greater the reward. So development definitely falls into that category. So there are things that, that can happen, but I guess there are tricks that you can, you can use in terms of, again, just... Things like um, when you're constructing, make sure you've got a fixed price contract. Um, but really, when you're, 
I think I just can't stress it enough. It's experience. So knowing how much things are going to cost and building in a contingency and being ruthless when you're from a resale perspective, being realistic with your end values. So I think, um, yeah, one of the greatest skills as a buyer's agent, if I may say so, is um, being able to do valuations on on properties and understanding what something's worth, and whether that's not just the initial site purchase and development, but it's also the end, the end um, resale. So, okay, once the project's finished, what's it actually going to be worth? So, assessing the resale market. I know, and even without kind of factoring in, okay, it might the project might take twelve to eighteen months, but if we're looking at it in today's terms, what what is it worth in today's market? And to me, that's that's absolutely essential. So you've been ruthless with your valuation before you purchase, so to make sure you pay fair market value, or less if you're good. Um, or alternatively, when it's complete, the project's complete. You know what what is it going to be worth on completion, and am I being realistic? And how does that tie in with my profit margins? Having provided that insight, Dutt also shares his take on what he believes is the average profit or return on investment that potential developers should expect. It depends on the area and um, local council and how long it's going to take for you to hold the project before you can get your DA through, so your development application through, development approval should say through. So, um, so I'd say you know for a standard entry level kind of subdivision, say around the 1.2 mark, I'd, I'd, I'd account for somewhere between a 10 to 15% profit margin on paper profit that you can expect comfortably. So I think that's readily achievable. Obviously, we aim for much more than that, but I think that's pretty replicable. So in other words, if you spend, say, $1.2 million on a project, I think you can readily stand to, to make 150000 spending a little bit more, say 1.6, I think you can push that closer to the $200,000 mark. Um, but obviously, again, if you start developing to sell, um, then you've got to factor in um, selling agent costs, capital gains tax, GST, because it becomes a commercial um, process as well. So you've, you've, if you're developing to hold just for the shorter term and whether that means you hold one for the longer term to, to, to um, see one cycle through or you hold both or you hold one and sell in the short term, uh, but just to get out of that again you know, that, that small window upon completion. In regards to subdivisions, Dutt explains where you can gain the knowledge to understand the intricacies behind them. So there's going to be a lot of, a bunch of professionals that you're going to work with. So, you know, the, the professionals that you're going to need to engage, I've kind of touched on some of them before. So you've got, um, you know, a town planner, you've got a surveyor, you've got a civil engineer. Uh, your town planner might engage some of those on your behalf. Um, but also, obviously, there's going to be council council fees. So every council is going to be different. Um, but uh, in a lot of cases, um, some co- some councils, um, you know, are quite proactive in what they want people to do. So they're definitely encouraging people to subdivide and do these small scale developments. Other people, such as you know the Inner West Council where I live, it seems to to make people's lives very difficult if they want to do developments. Um, but you know, it's 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 understanding council and what the costs are. But the other thing is that in a lot of cases, the costs don't differ greatly from council to council. So I guess this ties into land values as well. So with doing developments, the reality is that if your land's very cheap, um, your council costs may be the same to subdivide. So it could be cost prohibitive because I get asked a lot, um, people want to do subdivisions in the cheaper parts of Brisbane, for example, you know, on the outskirts, and they say I can easily find a site where, you know, for four or five hundred thousand, where it's got subdivision potential. And I say, well, the council con- council cost alone are going to make the 
the project not work and your resale market's just not there. I mean, it makes no sense. So I think developing as a as an approach, it's not going to work in every area. So you've really got to know the area and make sure that, okay, from a number standpoint, does it actually stack up and is it feasible, uh, you know, is it a feasible venture? Does it actually make sense to do this in this particular area? Thinking about the strategies he executes with his clients, Dutt explains whether there are any other types of developments that he carries out. Most of my clients, yeah, it's just stuff under standard residential. So and when I say standard residential, I mean standard residential borrowing. So um, in some cases, I've got clients that have wanted, that have access to either cash or commercial funding. So they actually can do developments that enable um, more than, say, three dwellings on the site. Um, but for most investors that are restricted to standard residential, i.e. non-commercial lending, then they're going to be stuck doing developments that have only got the capacity to to, to create two or, or maximum three dwellings on one site. So that's the bulk of what I'm doing. So it, it is, as I mentioned, small, smaller scale for most of my, my investor clients. Thinking about any helpful mentors along his journey, Duck shares that it was his partner at the time that got him started in property. I have to give credit to my partner at the time because she really was a catalyst for me getting involved in the property. Um, but, you know, I did immerse myself in it um, once we kind of made the decision that we were going to buy an investment property, our first investment property. So I read a lot of books. Um, in terms of mentors, I guess to me it was just more uh, really getting an understanding of uh, how property worked and and just sinking myself in in the whole inner workings of of um, you know crunching the numbers and getting my head around how property investment works because um, I'm as I said I've, I've touched on this numerous times but I'm very much a numbers person so um, understanding how everything worked from a lending side of things a tax side of things uh, you know that that really interests me so I made sure that I had a really comprehensive understanding of that. He also adds why podcasts and workshops rather than books have been more resourceful for him. I don't read a huge amount of books per se. I mean, I spend a lot of time dealing with, well, book, I shouldn't say, I read books, not necessarily <laughs> a huge amount about private investment if I'm brutally honest, but um, I mostly just talk to to investors and, you know, um, we, we run monthly workshops at Advisable and just talking to other investors, um, even though I facilitate them for the most part, it's very interactive and we all exchange stories and experiences. So to me, you know that's that's really important as well. Um, I do like, I like, I do like listen to podcasts. Uh, that's that's oh, the honest truth. So I, I I really like podcasts and hearing people's stories about you know their experiences and so on. So to me, I get a lot more out of that. Just you know, people speaking candidly about what they're seeing you know out there, um, you know, in the marketplace and their own experiences and their own journeys. To me. He shares an important piece of advice that has helped him and that could also help all the cautious investors out there. You know, at times I've been quite risk averse and, you know, a bit of a self-confessed scaredy cat. And um, and one of, a friend of mine once said, uh, he said to me, look, 80% of what you're worrying about will never happen. Uh, it might have been 90%, but whatever it was, the point was that... Um, you know, for me as a naturally cautious person, it just really resonated with me and, and, and it kind of gave me the um, the impetus to take that leap of faith and buy that property or whatever it was. And, it, and that even applies kind of to business and other things. So even though, again, I'm quite risk averse, sometimes I needed just a bit of a, you know, an encouraging push and remember, okay, I'm, yeah, am I overthinking things? Am I worrying too much? 
you know, am I kind of creating scenarios that are highly unlikely to happen? And the interesting personal habit that has contributed towards his success. I will admit that I'm naturally very skeptical. And, and I guess that what I mean by that is that I, I do second guess kind of information that I get. And I've touched on this a few times. Anything that's being told to me, I very much you know, like to dissect it and, and analyze it before I make a, make a decision. So, or before kind of uh, accepting something as my own belief. So to me, um, you know, that's, it's, that's based on some of my own experience in property investing, obviously, along the way, some of my own journey and experience with good, you know, bad ones in particular. Um, but, you know, it has helped me understand, you know, how, how things actually work. And, and most importantly, um, you know, apply this to, to, to where I'm at in my own situation. But one of the other things, I guess, as an advisor, um, one of the habits, I guess, I've adopted is to to make sure that, uh, you know, I acknowledge that every single investor is, you know, drastically different in terms of, you know, where they are in life, what they want out of this and their own risk profiles and so on. So to me, that's, you know, absolutely critical that everyone acknowledges that. So, you know, and that's why I think that things like, you know, your property first uh, type of of strategy where people look at, um, you know, people talk about the property, the opportunity first before understanding people's um, circumstances and so on, you know, it can be a very dangerous thing. Thinking back to the past, Duck talks about the important piece of advice he would have given himself 10 years ago. I think most importantly, it would have been, you know, don't overthink it and, and, and try, you know, try to find that magic bullet, you know, in terms of area and, you know, I guess get caught, caught up in the idea that some far-flung area was going to boom, um, you know, and, and this may sound counterintuitive, but there really was for me nothing wrong with my own backyard. You know, a lot of people talk about rhetoric about, um, you know, don't have all your eggs in one basket and things like that, which at the time I really, you know, took to heart, took way too seriously. And, you know, there's, there is, there, you know, I'm not saying that that's going to apply to everyone, um, but for me, that was one big, big lesson. Um, and, you know, also, as I mentioned, you know, I'd say to myself, you know, don't assume that anyone giving you advice knows better than you do, uh, you know, what's right for you, um, but also, um, you know, that has your best interests at heart. He also explains why looking at the outcomes of the property market five years from now is what really excites him for his future property journey. Obviously, there's some pretty significant changes happening in the lending world and the impact that that's having, happening on all the property markets is quite quite dramatic. So I'm interested in how that's going to shake out because to me, this is when the best opportunities are going to come up. Um, and I know, you know, maybe the sceptical people out there are going to think that that sounds quite self-serving, but I truly believe that, you know, and the most, the best stories that I've heard over the years about how investors have made money, it's those purchases when, you know, they take that leap of faith and they buy that property when everyone else thinks they're crazy. Um, and when everyone's, you know, the, the, the herd is, I guess, moving in one direction and you're moving in the other direction, it, it, it takes a lot of guts to, to actually commit to something um, and be counterintuitive or countercyclical. Um, so for me personally, I'm really looking forward just to seeing how those opportunities shake out. Uh, and we're already seeing a lot of them in Sydney uh, at the moment. Uh, so I find that, you know, really just really interesting. He also adds that while he definitely believes luck has played a role in his success, skills and education has also had a hand in his success so far. I do think a lot of it is luck. Um, you know, I'm not going to discount that. I think that uh, I've had some bad luck, but we're the first to admit that. But I think that um, I guess 
I've definitely got better at it the more I've honed my, you know, my skills and, and educated myself. So, you know, I think that that's absolutely critical. Uh, you know, and I think if I look back and, and look at the mistakes that I made, um, you know, they really were because, you know, I was, I just, um, I, I didn't have a, a good understanding of, of what I was getting into and what I was actually doing, um, but also I didn't have that confidence. So to me, that's really important as well. And that's self-belief. Thank you to Alex Dutt, our inspiring guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey or find out how you can get in contact with him or his team at Advisable, then visit our website at propertyinvestory.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.